everyone and welcome to Axiom Catalyst. May is ALS Awareness Month and this year Axiom is marking it with a dedicated podcast to help raise awareness about this disease, also known as motor neuron disease. My name is Dr. Anna Grasse and I'm joined today by Dr. Tim Williams from the Newcastle MND Care and Research Center in the UK to discuss how this disease affects each individual differently on physical, emotional, and financial level, and the personalized support that healthcare providers aim to offer to these patients and their families. Tim, thank you very much for joining us today. And you've been working in the space for over 20 years now. Mm -hmm. ALS, motor neuron disease, obviously is still a very devastating disease. We still Mm -hmm. have no cure. And I can imagine that having this sort of, giving a patient a diagnosis for the first time, it's probably one of the most difficult conversations you may have to have with your patients' carers, yeah. especially when it comes to younger patients who are like in their late 20s, early 30s. Yeah. Right? Could you speak to this experience, like how, you know, about this emotional journey that you also as a physician have to go through with these patients and their carers? Yeah. So, so I think that's right. I think if you, you know, if you talk to healthcare professionals about, you know, what's the disease in the whole of medicine, they might fear the most. And I think M and DLS would come up very high on that list. And so I think people that work in the field are very aware of that. And I think you're right. So that's a very high impact diagnosis. And fortunately, the, the young patients you mentioned come along relatively infrequently, but they're the ones that I think, you know, certainly where I am now, you know, not just in my professional career, but you know, or life-wise, you know, I've had families and everything. So when you meet patients who've got children of their own that are still very young, you know, I think back to what that might have been if I'd been in that situation with young children suddenly given a, a diagnosis for which there's no treatment and which is invariably fatal. But I think that kind of insight, that degree of humanity is key to being able to do that reason well and, and trying to do it gently. So I, I don't pull any punches in the consultations I have with patients about the gravity of the diagnosis, but I would always try personalise that diagnosis for them in terms of the features, their personal features of the disease, to try and personalise it a little bit in terms of what we might expect the future to hold in terms of disease evolution. And I would always be very vague about prognosis, but there are obviously patterns of disease you would see that would be associated with faster or potentially with slower progression. And also, you know, the consultation I have with with one patient of the same age would not be the same conversation I have with the next patient of exactly the same age. So again, a lot of it is about, you know, setting it in the context for that patient. So every patient I always meet, what I've always done and what I always do is I always ask them what, how old they are to start with. And I always get a little bit of background, so ask them what they do or what they did. So you've got an idea about their sort of socioeconomic setting, because that's going to temper your conversation as well to try and give it give it context. My question is, given the fact that obviously these patients will be already referred to your centre, which is a motor neuron disease centre, yeah. do they already come with the sort of expectation of the words that, oh, I may have this disease? So I, I would I say that's that's one of the things that has changed over my time working in the centre, as you say, for over 20 years. So I would have said when I first started working, the majority of patients, they, they might have been given the diagnosis, but they had no appreciation of what motor neuron disease was and what that might mean. So that has really changed now. So most patients have heard of motor neuron disease, which in a way makes my job and that first consultation a little bit easier because they have some appreciation of, of what it is. But also most of the patients that I see have already been given a diagnosis of motor neuron disease or it's been discussed with them as a possibility. So mm-hmm. it's it's relatively uncommon that it's not been considered. I guess the situation 
where that is the case is when I'm also a general neurologist, so I see lots of patients with general neurological problems. So I will see over the course of the week, I probably see half a dozen patients myself in my own practice referred in with various problems that ultimately proves to be motor neuron disease. And so that's you're then coming from, as you say, kind of ground zero in terms of their knowledge about what might be wrong with them. So I do have a lot of experience of not only clearly discussing patients who, where the diagnosis has always been considered, but also patients where de novo, where you just need to tread a bit more carefully and a bit more cautiously. And a lot of the hard, some of the hard work's been done for me. I can imagine. And like, on average, how long does it take for a patient to be referred to you, to your centre, from the first onset of symptoms? Like, what's the typical journey of those patients? So almost across the whole world, the average delay between onset of symptoms and diagnosis for MND is about 12 to 14 months. So the the quickest that we'll see patients is sometimes within two or three months, occasionally mm-hmm. for patients who've got fairly rapidly progressive disease or or disease, which is very obviously neurological symptoms that are very obviously mm-hmm. neurological, you know, speech problems or whatever. Mm-hmm. The actual service we run, one of the things that we work very hard on doing is that when patients have been referred to us, as you say, giving the the potential devastating impact of that diagnosis, we try and see people very quickly. So the average delay between referral and me seeing them is, is something like 12 calendar days mm-hmm. on average. So we try and do that. And sometimes it's a bit quicker and sometimes a bit longer, but that's the average. So we try and do it. So within two weeks, and that's not working days, that's that's calendar days. So, But that's one of the things that I emphasize with everybody in the team about that's really critical, get the referrals through and we'll get the patient seen quickly. And what kind of support apart from obviously treatment, the sort of centers like yours do offer to patients, do they offer also any sort of like um, psychological support to their carers? So we, we struggle with access to psychological support, although I, I'm hoping that's something that may change in the next few years. But all of our patients are offered an immediate post-diagnosis home visit. So one of the members of the team will go out and visit them at home, usually within five or six days, often with it, certainly within a fortnight. Some patients, a, f- a small minority of patients will decline that offer. It's always made. And some of them will might want to defer it for a little a while when they try to come to terms with what's happening. So that I think the actual diagnostic process that we go through them, the time I spend with them. So all of the patients that I see, new patients that are referred to me, all of them have long appointments. So we have at least an hour, fair bit of time to talk through things. They all get to meet one of the care coordinators immediately afterwards but we would usually try and keep that short because obviously given what's happened Mm -hmm. they don't really want to sit around for another hour with somebody discussing things and as I say at that time they'll then we will put in our diaries an appointment for them to for the one of the members of the team to go out and visit them at home so it's Mm -hmm. it's good they've got that immediate knowledge that there's an appointment on set up that they were someone will come out to see them again and we have direct phone line through to our centre so again all of them are given that number so if even between them seeing me, for example, and then and one of the care coordinators visiting them at home, if they really feel they want to, they can call and speak to us. We make a point of of trying to gather the details of are those friends or individuals or family members or whatever who they're happy for us to speak to, so that obviously we get a fair number of, for want of a better term, cold calls, if you like, from you know the members of <coughs> families of patients affected. And of course, then we're in a difficult situation about being cautious regarding confidentiality mm-hmm. so we like to build up a list with all our patients of people that who we can speak to and obviously they answer their, answer their questions and try and help them as well so we get so to summarize we don't have much formal psychological support but we do a lot of kind of soft stuff which from experience of the, of the team working together with patients with this condition for many years but also making sure they get supported immediately post-diagnosis the same way that you know cancer patients would get often get 
support from you know cancer nurse specialists or whatever immediately post diagnosis so, so we would try and do a similar thing to that uh, one of the key challenges in emergency space is lack of awareness that can lead to delay in diagnosis lack of investment in research etc as I said, like a lot of people now have access to internet very often when people yeah. have so, start to experience symptoms they google them themselves yeah. however we had also this sort of initiative such as the ice bucket challenge that went viral back in 2014 and yeah. really changed the situation for ALS, most neuro disease, right? From your experience, how this particular initiative or let's say a similar initiative for ALS MND changed the course awareness among not just general public, but community healthcare providers? Did, did you so actually I, see any like major significant impact? So it's interesting, isn't it, how quickly collective memories fade. So yeah. as you say, in 2014, when the Ice Bucket Challenge, it was a massive thing. And when, you know, it was viral worldwide. It's now this sort of recognition impact of that as an event, I think, has faded. Whether it's left a collective memory with the population about MND, I don't know. Now in the UK, the thing that people talk about are, it's the sort of Doddy Weir, Dan Burroughs story. So these, mm-hmm. you know, Doddy Weir, ex-rugby player, sadly passed away end of last year with, with motor neurons. disease and Dan Burrows, who's a rugby league player. So I guess there's always some event or quite often there's an event in the news that brings ALS to the fore. I think individual events, individual patients like Doddy or whatever, the time they remain in the collective memory is actually relatively small. And I think the biggest fear, not for me, but I know for a lot of the charities in the sector, was they got a huge inflow of cash money, uh, money from the, the Ice Bucket Challenge. And there were two things. One is they wanted to try and do something with that that would create a legacy that would be very long-lasting. That's difficult. And sustainable, I guess. And, yeah, and that's the second thing. The second thing would be, yeah, but what are we going to do? This year we've had £14 million. Pounds. Mm. Next year we might go back to our previous level of £2 million pounds or whatever it is. It's about what can we do somehow to try and ride the wave of, of the ice bucket challenge, but not just for a year, but for, you know, five years or 10 years. And that's what I say, but actually collective memory fades. I bet it'd be interesting now, you know, you and I would would remember ice bucket challenge. And I had to remind myself a few weeks ago that it was as long ago as 2014. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I think a lot, I think a lot of the general population, you know, who might now be aware of Doddy Weir or, or I'd be really interested to ask them, do a survey, you know, what can you remember as the last big fundraising initiative I wouldn't be smart. I bet the portion that we remember Ice Bucket Challenge would be quite small. Yeah. And then the other part of your question was about impact that that's had on professionals. I think, and the, the thing about Google, I think, again, it's a bit like I was saying before, I think individual patients' knowledge about MND, about what it might be, who've thought about that as a diagnosis and have read a bit about it is much, much higher. And well, I suppose it's good and a bad thing. So the good thing is that they've it's not uncommon now when I have a, a consultation with a patient, they'll say, oh, yeah, we thought that might be the problem right from the start, which helps, makes it a little bit easier, I think, from where I'm coming from. But equally, the, the downside of that, of course, is that they've thought about that and they've read about it and they've learned, what, it, as you say, what a devastating condition it is. So it's trying to sort of control or moderate that, the negative aspect of that. And, and I think that's for many, for many patients. That's why going and seeing you know, a specialist is really important, you know, that that even my colleagues, you know, I can't speak nationally, but I'm sure it's mm-hmm. true. You know, my colleagues locally who send me patients, you know, who work in the same department as me, but now because of the service that we've run and, and how inclusive it is, that 
even they will have had relatively vague conversations with patients about the nature of the disease, what might happen, you know, what prognosis and things like that. I mean, I, as I said already, I, I avoid giving any details about prognosis to anybody. Um, and yet many of my colleagues will give out average figures. I spend half time my consultations, you know, telling patients that there are average numbers and, and typical patients, but I've never met either the average patient nor the typical one. And that everybody's disease journey is is different but having that you know i mentioned before about trying to personalize things i think that's the bit i'd like to think that's the bit that the patients will get from coming and seeing us in our service that they'll get something that makes it grounds it a little bit more gives them some kind of perspective not all about the negative aspects of things but some of the some of the, the more positive aspects of what we're going to be able to do in terms of the support that we can offer there was a lot of donations being made towards sure. the initiative right and one of the areas that this initiative really benefited was the research. Yeah. Did you really see a major push from that money towards finding out more about pathophysiology, potential new treatments, uh, new so treatment I, avenues? The answer is that I'm sure there are projects that happen more quickly or perhaps would never have happened had it not been for the money that came from my back challenge. You know, the, the UK Smoking Your Own Association pumped a lot of the money that they got from Ice Bucket Challenge in, into research. And again, that's one of the things that patients and members of the association always push for. The difficulty is trying to then go from that to saying, well, what steps forward in our knowledge or treatments and things have come about specifically as a consequence of the Ice Bucket Challenge mm-hmm. money? And I think that's very, that tangible, identifiable positives that are hard to tie down. Yeah. And that's, you know, one of the things that I discussed with colleagues and with the MNDA and people when they were talking about the aspect of challenge money and trying to make a legacy was say, if you pump money just into research grants, ultimately, like I'm saying to you now, you'll, you'll struggle to say, what is the legacy of that ice bucket challenge money? What I argue potentially might be better is to provide infrastructure, more sort of semi-permanent infrastructure, whether it's a laboratory or potentially a post that you endow or something that will be there for longer. So we, you know, we had a member of staff, a care coordinator to, who was now physically based out to the west of our region, whose initial post was funded, primed by Ice Bucket Challenge money. And, and now that post is no longer funded by the MNDA or by Ice Bucket Challenge money. But you could argue, I might argue that that post would never have existed had it not been for the Ice Bucket Challenge funding. If you had to pick one area where you would definitely like to maybe direct more funding toward, uh, I know maybe patient care, you know, funding the sort of like regional coordinators that you just like mentioned, which area would you pick or would it be more yeah. towards understanding so, the basics of, you know, the disease? Well, yeah. So if I was thinking about patient care, then I think that every MND centre, and the question might be whether we should think about expanding that should have, you know, you need a neurologist who's both interested and has got expert knowledge of motor neuron disease and, as you say, patient care coordinator. And I think in all of those centres, and we've got one now funded through the Doddy Weir Foundation, would we have a staff member who's able to coordinate and support research in, in, from a patient, so trials research, so getting patients involved in treatment trials or other projects that require patient engagement and involvement and I think to my mind that would be quite separate funding to research and I would always I would still be of the opinion that it's the basic science that we still need more money into rather than you know everybody 
you know, because everybody wants their legacy to want to make their, their mark. Everybody's looking to try and develop the next drug or a drug that might have truly valuable effect in the management and treatment of patients with motor neurone disease. Part of the reason that, and I can understand why people might want to do that, part of the reason they can't do it is because even now our basic science knowledge lags behind. And obviously the treatment options in terms of curative or disease modifying treatment are very limited. We yeah. have currently two approved treatments in Europe. The third one became approved in the US only last year and is still not available in the UK to my best knowledge. Something yeah. from something. So I think the therapeutic landscape for motor neuron diseases is going to change quite significantly in the next couple of years. So I have had some, I have reviewed, and I've got some inside knowledge of, so I think the two big, or well, the, the obviously the obvious headline grabbing treatment is the, we you mentioned it before, are gene-specific therapy. So this is obviously Tolfacin, which is a gene-specific treatment for SOD1, which is potentially interesting and exciting, but I think the effect of that drug is less dramatic than was hoped. And, and the other big problem is that it's obviously a very restricted population of patients. So it's probably at most going to be 2% of the total MND population. However exciting it might be, I think that excitement needs to be tempered by the fact that it's going to be for a very small proportion of our patients. The other problem is that, that learning about Hofstra and potentially developing it so that we can deliver it at, a, at the right dose in the right way to the right patients is that it, that doesn't necessarily tell us anything about the treatment of the rest of the other 98% of MND patients who don't have a SOD1 mutation. And and that's part of my criticism of those projects when they started, is that that, that it's not going to be very helpful in, a, I don't think, in understanding the disease generally. Mm-hmm. So, so, but I, I think that is something, you know, lots, as you can imagine, all the patients who do their Google search before they come and see me, all ask about SOD1. And the patients who, even without a family history, are interested in testing for SOD1 is big. Part of the problem in the UK is we don't have a fast track mechanism for doing mm-hmm. that. That one of the things that frustrates me is partly that the company involved and the researchers involved maybe should have looked at that before they made their big press announcements. So do you think that this treatment should be accompanied by companion diagnostic? That, for example, yeah, so that's the that, that's the trendy term, isn't it? I, and mm-hmm. I think the answer to that question is yes, it is, because what would worry me if if Tolfson were licensed tomorrow, mm-hmm. I patient walked through the door and who was potentially eligible for that treatment on the basis of where they were of their disease status. At the moment, it's probably going to be a minimum of six months and close, probably close to twelve months before I would get a result in the UK of their gene testing. But equally, I would temper that by the fact that. As you and I sit here now, the results from the studies for Tolfson are not as great as we might have hoped. You know, that, that it, it has an effect, but it, it's not a cure. And the effect is relatively modest, as I discussed with some of my patients as well. At the moment, the treatment delivery mode is tricky. It's an intrathecal injection. And, you know, and it, it's all very well saying, well, I don't mind an intrathecal injection, but it's when I say to you, yeah, but you're going to come back every two or three months to have it. And we talked before about transport into centres and then. Imagine if you're very disabled, you've got to be on a couch and turn onto your side and have a lumbar puncture. There are lots of practical issues that might limit its use, particularly if I think we're not delivering it in an optimum way, but particularly if the efficacy is not as great as we might suggest, then I can see after a few few treatments as disease progresses, patients might turn away from it. So from your perspective, are there any emerging agents or class 
of drugs that excites you the most or like show the most promise in helping ALS patients with the disease progression? I, I do not think that there is an individual single class of drug that excites me. What I think where I think we will go, but what frustrates me that we haven't done more of it will be combination therapies. So you might argue at the moment that in a lot of the trials, they are combination because patients are usually on Rilizole plus whatever the experimental agent is. But we know that although motor neuron disease, by the time patients manifest the symptoms, is a uniform phenomena, at least in terms of, I mean, variable, but it's motor nerves not working. But we know very well that the pathway to physical disease is different in different patients. You know, so 85, 90 percent of the patients I meet are, as we currently understand it, have got sporadic disease. But we know 15% of patients develop motor neuron disease as an, an inherited condition with a number of different mechanisms. So straight away, you could stratify patients between those that have got motor neuron disease as an inherited phenomenon as opposed to those that, are, as best our understanding is at the moment, have it sporadic disease. And I think it likely that those two classes of patients might do best with different treatments mm-hmm. or combinations of different treatments. But the thought that there's somewhere out there there's a single silver bullet, you know, a single agent that will be a both highly efficacious and highly efficacious in all patients with MND, I think is naive. So why do you think manufacturers or researchers have not been doing more in order to test combination therapies in order to find a better cure for ALS? Good question. Partly because we don't our basic science knowledge, our mechanisms understanding is not, you know, you can find There are lots, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of publications out there about Mm -hmm. various biochemical pathways and mechanisms whereby motor nerves don't work properly. I think probably the majority of those are what I would describe as epiphenomenon. So in other words, if you've got a motor nerve which is not working properly or a nervous system, a motor system or a nervous system that's not working properly where motor neurons are dying or, or stopping working, then some of the abnormalities that you can then demonstrate in that system are a, a sort of secondary phenomenon. You know, they're a phenomenon of the drug of the cell not working properly in the first place. So it doesn't metabolize any chemicals, oxygen, energy, whatever. It mitochondria don't work properly. Potentially that offers you, you know, a therapeutic avenue, but it's not fundamentally telling you about the disease. And ultimately, you know, the Motor Neuron Association, lots of Patient associations, lots of research groups, you know, talk about, have taglines about, you know, a world without MND and, uh, you know, MND and ALS cure and all the rest of it. But actually, fundamentally, if you don't understand the basic mechanisms that leads to motor nerve dysfunction and death, and that I think that's why so many trials in MND have been have failed, mm. because we're dealing with epiphenomenon. Mm. We, the, our knowledge of science is not as good as it should be. So if I think about, so a lot of this is in the public domain. So, uh, you know, as you know, in, in the UK and Europe, there was a trial of low dose interleukin 2, the Myrocalf's trial. And the data from that are really, really, and I don't know, full data is not published, so I don't, I, you know, I don't know much more than, than you know. So we think that a marker of neurodegenerative disease and of motor neuro disease is, is the release of elevated levels of neurofilament. And one of the, one of the things that's come out of the Tolferson trial is that when patients that seem to be getting high dose and had the most effect, you could show that their neurofilament levels dropped. Mm-hmm. So it looks like not only is it a biomarker, but you can engage it and reduce it. And we think that may be evidence that we're slowing the disease. 
So in the interleukin-2 trial, they, they used a, not the neurofilament we use now, it was designed eight years ago, but they found a neurofilament level that correlated with rate of disease progression. So they had basically essentially three sets of patients, those that had low levels of neurofilament that progressed slowly, those with medium levels of neurofilament that progressed in a medium kind of way, and patients with very high levels of neurofilament that progressed very rapidly. The treatment was most effective in the group with the medium levels of neurofilament middle levels but the treatment didn't have any impact on neurofilament so the question would be what is the treatment engaging with it doesn't appear we, if we think neurofilament is important and lowering neurofilament levels is important then you could argue although that marked out patients that responded as a target we the drug didn't engage it didn't in, in, impact on it and therefore its effect may be transient clearly isn't as good as you might have hoped for Equally, if the target for interleukin-2 was to have impact on neuro T-regulator cells, well, it, you can measure it, it did that, but that may, may not be worth a, a hill of beans. Given the fact that ALS and the, is such a complex disease and one approach, there's no silver bullet, as you mentioned, right? Yeah, well, it seems very unlikely. Exactly. So how important do you think are the initiatives such as the Healy ALS platform trial that actually uh, pretty much was launched to test and evaluate? Uh, multiple treatment at once in order to reduce the cost of research, uh, test multiple drugs at the same time. And also, is there, at the moment, as far as I can tell, it's only run in the US, but is there any provision? So that would be, so that's what I would describe as a platform trial. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So there is a very similar trial in the UK, one running and and one that's going to start. So MND Smart is a platform Mm -hmm. trial. And they would argue that, like the Neal study, they went through a process in terms of selecting the, mm-hmm. the drugs they were going to trial, looking at both what's the data that's out there in terms of effect, efficacy in other areas. Do we know about any trials that have been done in, in motor neuron disease? And have we got some laboratory work, you know, through potential stem cell cultures and things to look at their impact on you know, putative motor neuron disease cultures? So not dissimilar. So the answer is, I think that is quite a significant step forward testing multiple drugs simultaneously it's more efficient and effective so you know for the MND smart trial that i'm in, that we're involved with as in the very near future we'll, we will have three treatment arms to the trial and only one placebo arm so mm-hmm. rather than 50 percent of our patients going in to placebo only 25 percent will go to placebo so that that's important both in from the patient's perspective means 75 percent of patients are going to off the opportunity to get active drug but it's more efficient you know one of the problems at at the moment there are so many different studies and trials going on we're almost saturated in terms of eligible patients for trials if you run an individual trial each individual trial needs its own control group placebo group so you very rapidly run out of patients so platforms are the way if we want to trial multiple agents we can do it and only 25 percent of our patients will be on dummy medication and all using the same placebo group as opposed to 50% in each different trial for each different drug having its own placebo group. So it's it's the way forward. And I think ultimately it might be the way that we will end up with patients on, you know, multiple agents, you know, a, a, a cocktail of medications. You know, at the moment, everybody's getting Rilizole plus whatever the new active agent is. But if the Neal study or the MND Smart throw up another drug that has an effect, then it will be Rilizole plus that drug plus whatever the next drug might be. So I, I think it offers some hope and it's a move towards the kind of strategy that we would that I've talked about, you know, about this needs to be we need a more intelligent approach that's going to recognize that 
probably multiple drug cocktails are, are wrongly going to be where we need to be. But that will only work hand in hand with we need to improve the basic science. We need to know what what are the truly important targets. How do we act, how do we engage those targets with drugs that are effective? So. In order to close our discussion, I want to talk about some of the innovative treatments that are coming to the market for neuromuscular disorders overall. As yeah. you know, as an expert in this space, you probably saw like so much interest in the use of gene therapies to tackle yeah. some of those most deliberating diseases such as SMA, Duchenne, yeah. uh, etc. And we've seen some promising results with those therapies. Yeah. There was nothing for SMA for a very long time, and then like you know, suddenly you had like this free treatment being approved in the spectrum. Yeah. Yeah, a couple of years. That's potentially curative. Yeah, exactly. With first gene therapy being approved. Yeah. So, as an expert in the neuromuscular space, do you feel optimistic where we're going? You know what the future is going to bring. I think for specific groups of patients, I think there is potential real hope for our patients that have got motor neuron disease as a, as a genetic condition. That said. The genetic structure and the, and the abnormalities that occur in SMA are very unique to that gene and the way it's it's organised. I don't know how much of the detail you know, but it, it's a very unique gene. We have two copies of the gene and, and some of them don't work properly or are deleted and you can replace them. That's not the case with the genes that cause motor neuron disease. And, and for a lot of the genes that cause motor neuron disease, my, my work, whilst I'm optimistic, my worry is... That, so if you even think about, the, you know, the most well-known, so SOD1, where there is potential for treatment, we don't know in patients with motor neurons disease who have SOD1 mutations, we don't know, if we're honest, why those mutations cause motor neurons disease. It's a toxic gain of function, but we don't know what that toxic gain is, which is why I come back to you in saying that mm. the problem with the strategies to gene block is that it doesn't then, it's not telling us anything by way of mechanism. You know, we've got a gene that's got toxic effect. We block the gene, therefore it has a therapeutic benefit. Well, yeah, that's what we would hope and expect. But it doesn't tell us something more broadly for MND patients. Mm. But there are also worrying features, you know, that you know that you might say, well, in the trials of MND that we've done with, with the SOD1 antisense treatments, might have hoped they'd be a lot more effective than they were, at least in terms of stopping the disease as opposed to just slowing it. And so there are all kinds of things would be, you know, there are a lot of similarities between all neurodegenerative disease and prion disease, for example. So could it be for something like SOD1, where we know that patients develop and, and get positive SOD1 mutant protein in their cells? Is that acting as a prion template? And even if you block the SOD1 gene and stop further SOD1 being, mutant SOD1 being produced, it might be that actually patients have already got a toxic load of SOD1, a mutant SOD1 on board already. So it doesn't matter what you do, you might slow it a bit, but the disease, the wheel or the rolling stone of, of disease is already moving and it's kind of too late, which is, what, as I say, which is why potentially not really knowing mechanism might might want, and it wouldn't surprise me in terms of one day shows that we've been very naive in approaching these diseases in that way and might also be why the therapeutic response we've had thus far is, is disappointing. And on this note, I would like to thank you once again for joining me today, Tim, and looking forward to speaking with you soon.